In today's Moneda Moves, we talk about essential workers. Defined on paper, that's someone who performs work involving the safety of human life and protection of property. In effect, it's healthcare, agriculture workers, bus drivers, grocers, just to name a few. And when we look a bit closer, these also tend to be minorities. Take New York City, for instance. A study from the city comptroller found that 75% of workers on the front lines are minorities. More than 60% of people who work as cleaners are Latino. And more than 40% of transit employees are Black. Now take a step back. If these employees are so essential, why is it that they continue to be paid low wages and ill-equipped for COVID-19 on the job? Global Markets reporter at NASDAQ and Trade Talks host Jill Malandrino joins me on today's Moneda Moves to address these questions and how we return to work in a new normal. You're listening to the Moneda Moves podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Alfaro, and here we'll be talking about Latinos, money, and our role in the American economy. I'm a multimedia producer living in New York City, and we're going to be covering Keeping Cuentas, or tabs on all things Latinos and money in the U.S., speaking with Potentes, or the next generation of entrepreneurs, and Monedita, how to put your money where your mouth is and support the Latino community. Welcome to the show. No te lo quieres perder. We're about six weeks deep in this pandemic, and with jobless claims up to at least 30.3 million, Americans are itching to go back to work. But what does this transition look like? And what has this pandemic meant for essential workers? Joining us today on Moneda Moves is Jill Malandrino. She's a colleague of mine at NASDAQ and has a wealth of knowledge in all things markets and business. She's host of Trade Talks, focusing on cash equities, listed options, derivatives, and ETFs. Jill was previously product development manager for the Streets Options Profits and reported from multiple trading floors. Before then, she was also on the institutional equity trading desks for Prudential Equity Group. Jill, what an impressive resume. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Kind of fangirling. Moneda is one of my favorite newsletters. Well, I'm fangirling too because I watch Trade Talks every day and not just because of my job. It is very informative. So for everyone on this podcast listening who may not know, Trade Talks runs on NASDAQ channels. Jill has been providing updates every day with our chief economist, Phil McIntosh, over at the NASDAQ, as well as other experts in the industry from thought leaders to investors to C-level executives about how they are addressing changes and transitions during this unprecedented time. So Jill, let's dive right into it. What sectors have been the most affected by coronavirus? Well, we're seeing accommodation and food services really be affected and not a surprise there because they're in contact with people all of the time. Um, Also administrative and support services, mining, um, arts, entertainment, and recreation, manufacturing, those five 
really have been the ones that have been impacted the most. Uh, that's when you hear in the news about furloughing employees or going for the PPP payment protection plan to help get some resources for service workers. That's really where you're hearing it uh, mostly, but the other areas, retail, of course, malls aren't open, healthcare and social assistance. I thought that was really interesting because you would think at a time of COVID-19 that you would be looking for more of those kinds of workers, but due to social distancing and um, the houses that they visit are clearly off limits, uh, which leads to a number of other concerns in terms of being able to take care of elders and people with mental health issues. But really, those are the areas that are being impacted the most. As we begin to have these conversations around returning back to work um, and, and doing so in phases, what do we see as the sectors that will return first and which will be the very last? I think this will largely be decided on a state and local basis and there was never or will be a federal coordinated response. Um, lack of testing, disjointed childcare, a lot of parents are dependent on schools and daycares, and it's also going to be different from industry to industry, geography to geography. All of these variables present challenges for different regions and areas of the country. For example, where we are in the New York metro area, we are regionally aligned with other states in the Northeast that are more dense than, let's say, areas in the Midwest, particularly the Northern Midwest, where it's more spread out. So I think at the end of the day, it's going to be gradual, it's going to be deliberate, it's certainly going to be a bit messy, and it's really going to depend on consumer demand and employer desperation. Urban centers are very dense, workspaces are not built for social distancing, and it's a risk of a second wave until treatment and vaccines are available, and that is at least 12 to 18 months away. Um, science and approvals, it takes time for very good reason, uh, regardless of political and social pressure. I read a great piece in the New York Times Magazine over the weekend how medical journals, such as the Journal of American Medicine, they're turning over pieces in nine to 10 days when typically it would be months because these type of articles go through what's called peer review from other scientists. And, and, and the reason they do that is, is to test the theories because in science, you always want to question why and be able to prove your thesis. So um, it's concerning a bit that these processes are moving quick, more quickly than they normally would. And I certainly understand why they want um, treatment and vaccines available, but it, it takes time. Um, the good news is demand will snap back in areas such as healthcare, like dentists, for example, hair and nail care, um, even restaurants and bars, because people are desperate to socialize. But whether it goes back to pre-COVID-19 levels, that I'm not sure of, because social distancing is going to have to be in place. Uh, new cars and homes, that may take a while. Um, Never getting to a normal or a new normal will be established. Certainly retail, um, I think we'll most likely look to China for guidance as its economy has been slowly coming back and people are shopping again. Um, we'll certainly have to adapt to lower foot traffic and there will be retail closures. Now, who will be last? I think airlines and the travel industry in general, they, they may not be last per se, but certainly it will take years to recuperate, much like after 9-11. Um, you know, even if we look at just one person's footprint in the month of April alone, I should have been in London, then Vegas, then Austin, Texas for a number of conferences. So there's a number of you know, six flights at least canceled there. All the Ubers, the lifts, the, the cab rides, the food, 
client entertainment. So it's just one person. And that's not something that you're going to get back. Just because I didn't travel this month of April doesn't mean I'm going to double it up next April. Same thing when you think about um, retail establishments, such as coffee shops. If I didn't buy coffee for the month of April, I'm not going to buy twice as much in May or June when we get back. So I think those are the areas that are going to be most impacted. Um, even if the demand is there, the supply that they'll be able to get through, that's the question because we don't know what social distancing will look like and we don't want to risk a second and third wave. Right, right. So the, the recurring theme here is that more time is needed. More time is needed for these studies to process and more time is needed as we wait for these sectors to come back and we come back into the economy as well. And I'm sure, uh, as you've discussed in your hits with Bill McIntosh, that some of these uh, residual effects of what's happening right now will show in reports from Q2. So so therefore, we'll, we'll need time in order to see what the full impact and that what that picture looks like. So, Jill, I want to talk a little bit about one of the subsector of employees that have worked through this entire COVID crisis, and that's the essential workers. Let's start by defining what is an essential worker. Right. And that's someone who performs work involving the safety of human life and protection of property. Now, that's according to the 2013 Essential Services Act. States can designate what qualifies as essential. Um, many jobs simply can't be done from home, whether it's healthcare, delivery, restaurant, grocery, sanitation, law enforcement, warehouse workers, even local volunteers that's critical to animal shelters and the wellness of uh, people in our society who need elder care, mental health care. And many essential workers, they're often low paid without employee protections like sick leaves, like health insurance. The CARES Act sought to address some of those concerns, but there, there are many loopholes to allow companies to not provide protection. The other side of that is the essential workers tend to get paid poorly. They're hourly paid, and they're the ones that are risking their lives and the lives of their family members uh, because they have to come back from the outside environment into right. their own homes. And right. many of them rely on public transportation. So, um, in fact, many... Jill, really quickly, if I could stop you right there, just because you, this, what you're mentioning is kind of like a, uh, an interesting paradox where some of our most, and it's in the name, essential workers tend to be some of the lowest paid. How is this affecting their daily lives? So they're being exposed every day to coronavirus, and yet they're being uh, paid uh, low wages and supporting a family where other people may have lost their jobs. So what does, what does this life look like for them? And what kind of questions does this present for us? I don't think anyone really understands what it's going to look like post COVID-19 because there's a lot of variables and a lot of unknowns out there. Duration of, of course is one of them. Um, what I can say is we constantly need to remind society of their worth once memory fades and the news cycle turns to the next tragedy. And of course we have our US elections coming up in November here. So that's really going to take a big part of the media's attention. Um, I think this is something that we can't let people forget about. And I think that when we look at this more holistically, how do we drive change and introduce, whether it's new laws or new acts where it's specific to protecting essential workers? I think we're really looking at an existential question for our society at large. And my concern is we have very short term memories. Uh, and this will happen again. Um, pandemics happen. Uh, you know, we've, we've lived through a number of them. And I haven't seen much change for essential workers since then. Um, the good side to that is because social media and there's online presence everywhere, 
we have a voice to make sure that this is not forgotten about. As you say, I think it's super important to remind people all the work that essential workers are doing from the grocers, people that are are helping at the front lines in hospitals, uh, people in in healthcare. I, I feel like there's been a lot of reporting in parallel about how the virus is twice as deadly for Black and Latino people, particularly in, in New York City. A lot of people wonder, you know, why is this affecting Latino and Black people? Is this because of a socioeconomic issue or is it a purely health issue? And I mean, the answer might be that it's that it's both, right? Because these Latino and Black people also tend to be essential workers, which means that they're exposing themselves every single day. Um, and then you come at it from the healthcare perspective and you say, well, if one of these people contracts um, the coronavirus 19 and they end up in the hospital and they ho- don't have proper health care when they're on ventilators, then that puts them in it. That, that means that they've crossed into a more uh, dangerous territory, right? So I, I think it's, it, it's all interlinked and it's definitely important to take a look at how these things affect each other. Yeah, and that's a great point that you bring up. Once we do get treatment, whether it's in form of vaccines or combined therapies, the question there is how quickly can this be produced on a mass scale? And the other question is, will this be affordable and readily available for everybody? Because at the end of the day, the coronavirus doesn't care if you're black, white, green, purple, whatever your religion, whatever your gender is. It impacts everybody. We're in the millions of cases here across the country, right? So it doesn't discriminate. But when it comes time to receiving therapy or being able to afford it, then all of a sudden, that's when things break down. Uh, And I think what's happening right now in science, they're exploring a number of different therapies. Uh, Protein therapies is one I had um, an asset with a company, Dyadic, on my show the other day talking about that, how their particular uh, C1 gene technology can allow other science companies to leverage that technology and help produce it on a mass scale, which means it's more affordable. So on the other side of this, we need to make sure that it's accessible for everyone. I feel like we tend to sometimes see this kind of reporting in silos. You have your business reporting, and then you have your um, health reporting, and then you have your science reporting, when really they all are very interlinked, and this conversation shows that. So, Jill, we've talked about uh, what sectors will be the last to to return and and which ones will be the first. As we think about ways for people who have been at home working remote or people who perhaps have been unemployed, how do we think about returning to work in physical spaces? Yeah, as I mentioned before, each state and some have even formed regional coalitions, local government's going to be responsible for opening up their respective economies. Uh, In our region, New York City, it's going to be slow. It's going to be deliberate. It's going to be done in cautious phases. New York City accounts for 10% of the U.S. GDP alone. So clearly, it's well, the New York City region. So it, clearly, it's necessary to, to get it back online. But at what cost, right? A second wave has the potential to be just as bad, not just New York City, but all densely populated urban areas. I think you'll see service workers return first. Companies that are now operating at nearly full capacity remotely, they're not going to be in a rush to get their people back into the office because we are performing or even outperforming in many cases at home. And this isn't a let them eat cake kind of attitude, but rather why put a strain on resources that will certainly be stretched as we return to work? What's public transportation gonna look like? I work in Times Square. I'm not sure I'm in a rush to get on a New Jersey transit pack train and then a packed subway. 
over the next three to four weeks for sure. How do we practice social distancing when a typical commute, we're riding in between cars. Uh, a lot of offices aren't made for social distancing. So we're gonna have to rethink what all of that looks like. I also think a lot of it's gonna depend on what childcare is available. If schools aren't open and daycares aren't open, a lot of people will not physically be able to go back to work. As we make a transition into the new normal, how should we prepare financially? One of the silver linings of this crisis is people are learning the value of saving and budgeting, especially for those that still have income coming in and they're seeing their bank accounts with extra money since we're simply, we don't have any expenses that are coming out due to the lockdown. Um, I really think while we have the time to be at home, we should look at resources for rebuilding, saving, budgeting, even starting to invest. Take stock of your current situation. Explore all the benefits that are available to you. Um, I think this is really essential, identifying expenses that you either need or that you want. I need to get to work, but do I need to pay for the salon? Do I need to pay for my gym monthly expense, happy hour, apparel? You need to weigh what is a need and what is a want. Um, building healthcare and emergency savings into that. And uh, a tool that worked really well for me um, after I went through a layoff in 2008 due to the financial crisis, I cut up all of my credit cards and I only used a debit card or cash for all expenses till I got back on my feet because my mantra was, if I can't afford to buy it in cash, there's a reason why. And that was super helpful in rebuilding my credit, rebuilding my savings and um, learning the value of using credit appropriately. Now, that's a solid mantra. I so appreciate you sharing that story, having had to rebuild yourself, especially looking back at the financial crisis of 08. We know some people were still recovering from it as late as 2018. Jill, thanks so much for sharing your insight on essential workers and how we can expect to go back to work. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Are there any topics you'd want to hear on the upcoming episodes? I'm all ears. Drop us a line at Moneda Moves on Instagram or Twitter. But for now, we're signing off. Hasta la próxima. Until next time.